0: Hello, my dear listeners. Welcome back to another episode of The Imposter, the podcast dedicated to engaging you, the public, with the marvels that the sciences hold. That was beautiful. Now, today we're going to finally be wrapping up our series on mating. And listen, it only took the better part of a year, but hey, we made it, folks. We made it. So the culmination of this series... We'll be looking into the varied motivations behind sex throughout the animal kingdom. Meow. Now, I do want to just clarify that when we talk about motivators, I'm going to do my best not to give into the temptation of interpreting behavior through an anthropomorphic lens or lending too much credence to the neural processes that contribute to decision making in animals. So perhaps, in some animals' minds, they display a mating ritual. They mount, they sex it up, purely because it feels good. That said, I can't imagine creatures like nudibranchs, octopeds, and praying mantises really enjoy either severing their penises or being consumed after coitus, but, you know, to each their own. Now, perhaps there is an environmental and or a chemical change that occurs that can instinctually urge them to, quote, get humping, but basically, we don't actually know what that fox is thinking when it's trying to get that sweet, sweet fox punani. We can only make observations and at best record physiological and behavioral actions and responses. Now I'm sure someone out there is thinking, just use a different word then. Why use motivation in the first place? Why not the term drivers or reasons? Why indeed, my friends? Why indeed? (laughs) Okay, so that said, we know that one motivator for copulation is to produce offspring. But what are the motives for non-reproductive intercourse? And how do we define intercourse? Well, let's find out together on this week's episode of The Imposter. We live in an age based on science and technology with formidable technological powers. And if we don't understand it, by we I mean the general public, if it's something that, oh, I'm not good at that, I don't know anything about it, then who is making all the decisions about science and technology that uh, are going to determine what kind of future our children live in? We've really got to start at the earliest levels with having a broader view of what education really can and should be. Because I find that with the young people we have, we are able to motivate them. Gives you an understanding of the forces of nature. It's not even about how much science you know, it's about how science, literature, or pop culture can play a big role in helping the scientific community engage with the public. The impact is even greater when the references are actually related to the research topic. With that in mind, half of today's episode can be summed up with a quote from a solid lyrical smackdown by Notorious B.I.G., further popularized by the Keanu Reeves heart-wrenching film Hardball, and I quote, I love it when you call me Big Papa. If you have a gun up in your waist, please don't shoot up the place, because I see some ladies tonight that should be having my baby, baby." Now, Biggie touched upon some important biological and behavioral concepts, notably the alpha male strategy of male-to-male competition for mates, and he did this by referencing fighting and guns, as well as the motives of sexual reproduction, with his mention of seeing ladies and yearning to make a baby. Following this idea up in simpler terms is the prolific late 20th century philosopher group the Bloodhound Gang, which once said, You and me, baby, are not anything but mammals, so let us do it, like they do on the Discovery Channel. Now, what was the it they were referring to, you might wonder? That would be, in no uncertain terms, boning. But unlike Notorious, the Bloodhound gang's motives for intercourse is more abstract. You see, the gang don't impress upon their listeners that their motivation for sex is to pass on their genetic information via baby, but rather for more recreational purposes. This is the other half of today's episode. Non-reproductive motives for sex. So now that we've briefly introduced our subject, let's start with the sexual motivation that many animals, as well as very religious people, all subscribe to. Reproduction. For most organisms on this fine planet of ours, The prime directive of playing genital quidditch centers around the successful transfer of genetic information from one generation to the next. It would seem that many species of fauna and flora are bound by the constraints of relatively short or endangered life cycles that then limits their energy expenditures to mainly foraging for food and reproductive mating. So not a lot of wiggle room. For other species, expending further energy on strengthening social bonds and relationships is just as important to their continued development and success. Now the laziest example that comes to mind is with us, Homo sapiens. Throughout the relatively short period of development, when old world monkeys and apes split from our common ancestors, humans have continued to build upon complex social structures and relationships. Our social unity might have begun due to shared interest in hunting and safety in numbers from predators, but it quickly careened down a winding path of increased cognitive function that produced a vast archive of communication tools. From languages to the arts, government and business that formed the opportunities for a species reliant on social bonds for progress. Sex is both an influencer and a tool of communication and it's often found somewhere in the middle of the two. The great Dr. Ruth once said, quote, don't criticize in the sack, discuss constructively later. Whether you agree with the good doctor or not, she highlights the use of communication in intercourse and relationships. Now, without getting into all the many intricacies of sex and relationships, on a basic level, humans form monogamous relationships mainly to procreate and raise the next generation. Hashtag Star Trek, hashtag Easter eggs, yes, you nerds. Or, instead of procreation, they choose a suitable mate for a much shorter time, i.e., the infamous one-nighter. Either way, sex is often the central aspect of both of those relationships. Now, we humans may have the most creative explorations of sex. The genre and fetish selection in the porn industry can attest to that. But we are not the only creatures to play pelvic pinnacle without the intention of procreation. A fascinating article in Psychology Today highlights just how important motive and intent is for humans when it comes to sex. The article which I've posted a link to in this episode's blog post addresses some big questions when it comes to the motivations that fuel human mating and how we measure intent. In monogamous relationships, most of us are aware of the desire to procreate. But what about sex for pleasure? And how is pleasure even defined? Do we use orgasms as a metric to define pleasure? The article dives into the psychological theory of approach-motivated behavior and avoidance-motivated behavior. My understanding of this is that approach-motivation behavior is a behavior that is exhibited with the intent of resulting in a positive outcome while avoidance-motivated behavior is a one that is centered around minimizing or avoiding an outcome that could be detrimental or troublesome. So when applied to human relationships, there is approach sex and avoidance sex. Approach sex is motivated by a desire for subjective intimacy or physical pleasures, whereas the motivations behind avoidance sex are almost entirely emotional, focusing more on creating momentary distractions in relationship troubles or, as the article eloquently put it, mercy sex. The author of the piece, Dr. Noam Spencer goes on to discuss research done on the impacts of the two behaviors. The take-home points of the results are either motives for sex are better than no sex. However, approach-motivated sex has a measurably more positive impact on both someone's relationship and sexual satisfaction, and this was found in both partners. On the other hand of the spectrum, avoidance sex, surprisingly, showed a decline in both relationship strain and sexual satisfaction. Now, the inferred explanation given for these results lay in the idea that approach sex feeds both the emotional and physical needs of a relationship, which then creates a feeling of desire, and being desired is a contributor and an influencer of sexual satisfaction. The article was a curious read, so if you're interested in the subject, check out the blog for the link, because it really was fascinating. Now, all of this is just one theory for sexual motivation, it's important to remember, and it's also only in one species of animal, us, humans, homo sapiens, and studied, again, in only one group of individuals, monogamous, sequestered, within the confines of sample sizes and other experimental parameters. So as you can imagine, and as is the case with nearly everything, there is a lot more to be learned. Now, with that in mind, let's slap on some curiosity lube and squeeze into our mental leathers to explore some more of the motivations for sex in the animal kingdom. Reproduction the most established driving force behind sex still has its nuances. Let me explain. Most folks are armed with the knowledge that organisms mate in order to pass on their genetic information. The motivation behind that desire stays the same, but the strategy can vary depending on the behavior and the lifestyle of the animal. Take for example the straightforward operation of P and the V makes the baby this is a common strategy taken by species that form monogamous bonds but another tactic is the multiple peas in the V this is when, like it sounds, multiple males inseminate a female and hope that their little Michael Phelps are faster than their competitors that or if it's an animal like a shark it can catalog semen and store it for later resulting in offspring from the suitor with the strongest swimmers or just Children from various baby daddies, you know? Now, this is done more frequently by animals that don't pair up for life, but rather rely on the strategy of, yours is the best genes to use, for now. There is loads of fascinating stuff when it comes to reproductive tactics and sexual selection. So, if you're bored at night, or at work, I guess, and you're looking for something to Google, the implementation of costly signaling theory or resource allocation in mating strategies is definitely something to check out. It's a rabbit hole that even Neil would get lost in and it definitely will make your browser history look um, colorful. We'll go with that. So. I won't go into this, as we kind of covered it in previous episodes of Mating Strategies that I did for this series, but just to give a little enticement, I will just say that it has to do with trading off anatomical and physiological bits and bobs in order to stay ahead of the mating competition. So for instance, a study was done with the polygynous horned beetles that generally play by the rules of the larger the horn, the more mates you'll attract. But in the study, when they cut the horns off, the beetle pupa began to develop larger testes in response and started to produce more sperm. Thus, they might not have had the biggest horns, but they sure had plenty of beetle juice. And who knows? Maybe that's how Michael Keaton got the role. Now, that's not the whole story, but... If you want to, I don't know, do your own research, I would definitely think that's a good idea. And because I care about each and every one of you 15 diehard imposter listeners, I've included a link to a Live Science article that talks about the different strategies of reproductive mating. But, like I said, it's pretty well known that reproduction is a, is a solid motivator. So we're going to move on to more exciting mating motivations, such as pleasure. Mm. One of the great modern orators of truth once said, Do I make you Randy? Do I make you horny baby? Yeah. The poetic and often misunderstood sentiment behind Mike Myers' International Man of Mystery is that of a complex environment and child-rearing influences. Though an extroverted playboy on the surface, the overt questioning of his sex appeal onto others suggests that Mr. Powers has a deeply rooted seesaw with self-esteem and image. His formative years, Austin was absent of a mother, raised by a consistently neglectful father, who was responsible for simultaneously developing his impression of women as sex toys, as well as his abandonment issues, based from neglect and sending him off to boarding school at a young age. As an adult, Austin gained notoriety for being a Playboy spy and writing a book on using a Swedish penis enlarger a testament towards his self-esteem issues being rooted in sex. This plays out in his deceitfully playful question of turning a partner on. The need for self-affirmation is so dire for him that it requires a seemingly unusual, if not inappropriate mating strategy. Now, unless your partner has an unusually lenient sense of humor during foreplay, or is a big Austin Powers fan, I don't think asking them if you make them horny is going to get you some nookie. That said, this is a science podcast, so please try it and let me know how it goes. All right, with that in mind though, why does Austin try repeatedly with this strategy? I mean, even Elizabeth Hurley winces at the proposition. So what is his motivation? My interpretation is that it brings him instant affirmation to utter the notion that he makes someone feel horny regardless if it's true or not. His motivation for sex seems to be more centered around an emotional pleasure of attaining the wantedness he so lacked growing up. It is both an odd and sad path to achieve emotional pleasure, perhaps not too dissimilar to the train wreck that is the 45th. Anyway, the point is, mating motivations beyond procreation can be complicated, and layered with all sorts of individual drivers. Complex emotional pleasures and gratification might be one that is more commonly observed in species that have higher cognitive functions, but hey, who knows? I've never been in the head of a pangolin engaging in the old one-two pelvic woohoo, so I can't say for sure. What I can talk about, though, is the motivation behind sex for pleasure in some animals aside from humans. Again, It's hard to measure pleasure in animals that don't communicate easily with researchers, especially when there is little funding for expensive studies that don't guarantee a benefit for humans. But in order to have sex for pleasure, an animal has to actually have the right anatomy and physiology, such as specific muscles, well-positioned nerve endings, sensory organs like the clitoris, etc. And yes, though we said earlier that having orgasms is not necessarily the best metric for pleasure, it's also not one to disregard completely. After all, it is literally the sensation of pleasure that is elicited during orgasms. Now the question, do animals have sex for pleasure, is an interesting one to me, and before we even get into the sex, I reckon we need to think of the occasionally overlooked sexual warm-up that is foreplay. To my own surprise, i found that oral sex is actually fairly common throughout the animal kingdom. Primates, hyenas, goats, even captive bears have all been observed getting their D's wet. And it just goes to prove that oral sex truly is a universal currency. Some animals may perform oral sex as part of courtship behaviors, while others, like our lovely fruit bats, use it as a way to prolong sex in the hopes of possibly extending the chances of fertilization. So next time your partner expresses their disinterest in foreplay, you let them know, if bats can do it, so can you. Okay, now to the actual act. In researching sex for pleasure in animals, I used the metric that was the most common in the peer-reviewed studies, and that was having sex year-round during all periods of the menstrual cycle in heat and out of season. The first creatures to fall under these constraints were bonobos and dolphins. Our non-human primate cousins bonobos, with which our DNA only differs from by roughly 1 to 2 percent by the way, are unique in their sexual expression and communication even to other primates more closely related, such as chimpanzees. A handful of studies have been conducted over the years to try and dive deeper into this. The 1993 publication The Evolution of Sexuality in Chimpanzees and Bonobos by Richard Rangham suggests one of the reasons as to why bonobos would engage in non-contraceptive mating is notably the Big Brain Hypothesis, BHH, which according to the study is, quote, Big Brain Hypothesis states that sexuality becomes emancipated from hormones in species with brains big enough to allow neural control, such as monkeys and apes, but not rodents or carnivores." End quote. So basically, the bigger the brain, the higher the likelihood that sex becomes driven by the mind as well as hoardiness, a.k.a. the physiological processes such as hormone production now the second explanation mentioned in the publication is the mating system hypothesis msh which again quoting from the study is sexual traits which serve to maximize each individual's reproductive success within the constraints of the species social organization end quote. this theory takes more of a sex to help relieve social conflicts or drive status approach the more recent 2014 study, Non-Conceptive Sexual Interactions in Monkeys, Apes, and Dolphins, by Furuyuchi, Connor, and Hashimoto, apologies if I completely ruined the pronunciations of those names, uh, dives further into this observation of sex for presumable pleasure in monkeys, apes, and dolphins. And they break down non-reproductive sex into different categories, such as sexual interactions among juveniles or sexually immature individuals, same-sex mating, sex of mature individuals out of mating season, and a few others. There are a handful of these studies that seem to suggest that these non-reproductive sexual behaviors are driven either by social factors, such as strengthening bonds and mending relationships, or easing group tensions, kind of like the English World War II mantra, lie back and think of England. Other drivers might be more physiological and behavioral. For example, knowing what they're like in the sack might help with selecting potential mates later on, kind of like straight up DTF dating. On this same note, having sex with many suitors, regardless of the reproductive outcome, can be a tactic to confuse males in a group, tricking them with their promiscuous confusion into investing energy into childcare. So, eat your heart out, Jerry Springer. Okay, now back to this 2014 study mentioned, there are a few other forms of non-reproductive sex, such as the masturbation one and same-sex interactions, which is exactly what we're going to dive into next. And we're gonna start with masturbation. You might be wondering where I'm going with this. You might even be worried. Full disclosure, I will confess, I do have a growing fascination with the biological drivers behind masturbation, so I get it. I mean, look, on a basic level, you're horny, you're bored, you're both. Or maybe you just developed an addiction to masturbating. But literary explorers of sex like Chuck Palnook, E.L. James, or the great Dr. Ruth have all probed and pondered both the common and the more ambiguous sexual behaviors of us humans. As creatures with higher cognitive functions, these insights from these social commentators and their interpretations into the convoluted layers of our sexual expressions are welcomed explanations. However, my curiosity is less philosophical and more centered on the physiological question of why some animals built masturbation into their observed behaviors. Rubbing one out requires an expenditure of energy, both physical and mental, And while the outcome is self-serving, there is no guarantee of satisfaction, especially in the long term. Now, I think it's important for this section on masturbation that I clarify that from the research I've been doing, it seems that many animals do masturbate, but in fact, they don't come. We homo sapiens just really like to see things through to the end. I suppose. Now, this is an important distinction because ejaculating seminal fluids requires more energy. Think about it. You gotta restock the sperm cupboard afterwards. So, just take note of that. But moving on. I don't think anyone is particularly surprised to hear that our domestic canine and feline friends use this dry masturbating technique. Though, like myself, you might not have thought of it. All that dry humping, mounting, thrusting, and genital licking behavior that our pets do is indeed a form of masturbation. And actually, upon saying all that out loud, I can't believe I didn't see that before, but, you know, yeah, yeah. yeah. But a few other masturbating mammals are horses, walruses, squirrels, who I'm actually now going to take a second to discuss. Because squirrels are very interesting creatures when it comes to sexual behavior. For one, they are one of the few animals that, like us, masturbate and ejaculate. Now, unlike some theories for the purpose of masturbating, such as jacking off as a sexual outlet or replacing older, slower sperm with newer, faster ones, Cape ground squirrels might have some different motives. Animal behaviorist Jane Waterman spent 2,000 hours observing these frisky squirrels, and this culminated in a handful of peer-reviewed papers laying out some of her theories based on this collected data. She observed male squirrels masturbated more when their female counterparts were getting ready to mate, as well as those males that were dominant and had been busting a nut, pun intended, of course, tended to masturbate more. Now, this observed behavior lowers the likelihood of the sexual outlet theory, as the males that were already getting some were the ones masturbating more. She also observed the male squirrels to jack off more frequently after having sex, which again runs counterintuitive to the idea that they were masturbating to replace old sperm. So no. Instead, my dear listeners, she suggests that perhaps aside from what might be a nice stimulating sensation, these squirrels masturbate for health reasons. When the squirrels ejaculate, it cleans out or flushes its tubes, so to speak, inadvertently cleaning the genitals preventing infection, lowering the risk of STIs, and yes, STIs are prevalent in many other animal populations. So the last bit of these Cape Ground squirrels' masturbatory behavior involves the consumption of said ejaculate. Male squirrels have finally answered the age-old question of, if you could reach it, would you swallow? And I guess for... Well, I, for them, the answer is yes, I suppose. Again, teach their own. Anyway, they don't do this for some weird squirrel frat-hazing thing, but for a more practical reason, most likely, which is that they're desert animals, and any loss of fluids is pretty costly to survival. So, always a good explanation. There are other animals, such as our avian brethren, aka many species of birds that like to jerk their chicken. And if you're a chicken, I guess that's just jerkin but often the manner in which birds perform their masturbation is by tucking their tail feathers under their cloaca which is a singular hole for both toilet functions and sexual functions and they proceed to rub their feather covered cloaca against different objects and occasionally the unassuming human now even reptiles like turtles have been known to masturbate In fact. In researching this episode, I discovered, to my utter horror and also amazement, the abundance of masturbating turtle videos on YouTube. Really, really, that's hit or miss. But it seems that different animals have different needs for masturbation. That's that's the conclusion I've come to. Some use it as an outlet for sexual release, others for health and wellness purposes, and there are probably a number of other possibilities as to why animals tow their tugboats. However, I am not a professor of masturbatory sciences. My role is to be the bringer of said scientific topic, and yours is to take that topic and run with it. And on that sweet, self-indulgent note that is masturbation, we're going to bring this episode, part one, to a close. Now don't worry everyone, part two will be coming out shortly, so keep your eyes and ears peeled. But, of course, I will also make announcements on the Facebook page and on SoundCloud. Probably also on Twitter, to be fair. Yeah, I guess it's still relevant. Now, I will say, before I do my sign-off, all this talk of penises and masturbation has reminded me of one of my favorite quotes from one of my favorite books, which is The House of God by Samuel Shem. And the quote goes like this. Life is like a penis. When it's soft, you can't beat it. And when it's hard... You get screwed. So yeah, there you go. A little bit of penis wisdom. See you through the end of the week. All right, everyone. That is going to do it for us here at The Imposter. Thank you. Thank you, as always, for tuning in and listening to us. If you enjoy today's episode or any of our other episodes, tell your friends about us. Share us on Facebook. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on SoundCloud, on iTunes. And as always, you can find all the supporting information for this episode on our blog site, which is http forward slash slash Stay safe and stay curious. We'll see you next time, folks. Peace.